Good morning. My name is Danielle Johnson, and I will be reading from Revelations 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Danielle. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Josh. Good to be with you, everyone. Uh, hey, so, um, so hey, let me show you a picture here. Uh, this is uh, InterVarsity, if you're familiar with that parachurch group. They do college ministry on a number of college campuses around the world. Uh, this is InterVarsity South Bay. Um, so one of, one of the things that's been, been troubling some of us for some time here in the South Bay, there, there's just very few areas for those who are college-aged to be ministered to, to be in fellowship with others. So a few of us started praying and cooking up this idea and saying, hey, we've, we've got an university staff person who serves El Camino and a couple other places. They're having a very hard time gathering people. We have a lot of churches in the South Bay that don't have a college ministry. What if we're able to kind of marry the two and start something? So... University South Bay just came about. This was their first meeting last week. They had 15 students there, their first one. If you squint and look really carefully, you'll see a couple of people you might know there, Abby Mori, Tony Alvarez, a couple of kids who have come up and been baptized in this church. So very stoked on that. So just wanted to, uh, wanted to make you aware because it's really good times. So we're uh, praising God for that. Today, friends... Episode two of our series in Revelation, what Jesus looks for in a church. So we started last week with a bit of an overview, some important nuggets there. If you weren't here, you might want to go back and catch that one just to kind of bring some of these pieces together. Uh, some might say Revelation is kind of complex, and so it's good to have things to bring the pieces together. So uh, go back to last week if, uh, if you missed that one, perhaps. Uh, but... What we're looking at here is, in the beginning of Revelation, there's a, a segment of this book where Jesus has John write, uh, he dictates to him these seven letters to seven different churches. And in each of them, he's highlighting a quality that Jesus finds to be indispensable for, uh, for being a, a church that is healthy. So uh, I'm sure we would all agree this is really important. Right? To know what are the things that Jesus thinks are important 
in a church. And whether you are like a lifelong Christian or barely a Christian or thinking about being a Christian, I, I mean, I think we would all agree on this. If, if we're going to be a church, we want to be the sort of church that Jesus would recognize as, yes, that's, that's what I am looking for. We want to be a church that would make Jesus proud. And that's really our goal in going through this series as we are prayerfully asking Jesus to more and more help us embody these seven qualities that show up in the beginning of Revelation. Uh, Today, we're looking at the first letter. It's the letter to a a church in a place called Ephesus. And maybe unsurprisingly, the first quality that Jesus writes about in the letters to these churches is love. This is the first quality that Jesus says is indispensable to a church. And I, I say unsurprisingly, Uh, Because Jesus puts such a premium on this. If you have read the Gospels at all, uh, this has to be, if not the one thing that stands out about Jesus, it's got to be up there, right? Just the way that he interacted with people, all people, incredibly loving. And there's an episode, and maybe you know it, where some people were trying to challenge Jesus, and they asked him the question, what's the most important commandment? Do you remember what he said? Anyone have this? What did he say? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. He says, this sums up the entirety of all the commandments that God has given. Love God, love people. If you do this well, you're going to end up doing just about everything well. And conversely, if this is missing, even the things that we do well get distorted by a lack of love. Uh, We'll... We'll kind of sum up this morning's teaching with with this line, so kind of hold this as we go through it. But we could say this, that without love, a church cannot look like Jesus. If love is missing, a church cannot look like Jesus. And friends, that is the point, isn't it? If the business of God and calling us to be his disciples and as we are apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, becoming like him, if we're missing love, we will always miss the mark because Jesus is the perfect embodiment of love. And so we have to have this. We have to get this right. And the truth is, if we aren't getting this right, even the things that we do do right end up getting distorted, as we'll see as we read through this. So... Uh, how do we as a church cultivate this? How do we be a people that continues to grow in love for God and people? Uh, Here's where we're going. Uh, We're going to talk about this morning. We want to look at the encouragements and the correction that Jesus has for this church in Ephesus uh, and and see how that kind of plays out and what the church is and isn't doing. And then we'll, uh, we'll end this morning just looking at a couple of practices that are core to being people who grow in love. So let's pray, and we'll look at the text together. Heavenly Father, it is our confession this morning that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious and wise, and we want to be like you. We pray, God, that you would be doing your work in us. God, that in all all humility and all modesty, that we might apply ourselves to the teachings of Jesus, 
that we might be enlivened by your Holy Spirit to live these out. We pray, God, that we would be people who, from the inside out, beginning with love and working its way out into all of our actions, we pray that we would be people that honor you in the way uh, that we are pursuing Jesus together. Uh, So, God, make it so. We trust you to be working in us even this morning as we worship. In Christ's name, amen. So one thing that you're going to notice about these seven letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches is that they're all structured in the same way. Uh, For each church, it starts with a word of encouragement, right? Where Jesus just says, I see you. He says, "I, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see who you are. I see the challenges you're facing and the ways that you're being faithful. It starts with encouragement. And then there's a correction. Right? Where Jesus says, I, I also see the ways that you're failing, the ways that you're falling short, the ways you're selling out or giving up or giving in. I see those too. And in his grace, he's calling those out. And then each letter ends with a word of promise. Where he says, if you are faithful, if you follow me in this, if you let me shape you into the kind of church that I want you to be, this is what you can expect to follow as a result of this. This is the way that God will reward you. For that. So keep that structure in mind as we, uh, we look at, at this letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, we read in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now pause there for just a moment. So in each letter, Jesus starts by identifying himself by by some particular attribute. And these attributes are all attributes that showed up in the vision in Revelation chapter 1, right? So one part of that image that John had, Jesus will take that and he applies it to the church that he's speaking to. And so in this one, uh, in this one, he is saying, I'm the one who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. So uh, don't expect you to remember this, but in chapter 1, we learn the stars were the angels of the churches. The lampstands were the churches themselves. And each of the letters is addressed to the angel in that particular church. Now, long, long history of Bible scholars debating what is meant by the angel there. Are we talking about the spiritual beings, the unseen realm that is with us all the time, that the scripture says is strengthening those who are seeking to follow Christ? Is that what meant, what's meant here by angel? Uh, that same word, uh, the, the Greek word, angelosic, it can mean also messenger. So some say, no, this is, this is a human messenger. This is, this is the, the pastor. This is the, the leaders of that particular church. Uh, others have said, no, this refers to just kind of the ethos, the spirit of the church, if you will. Uh, in any case, whichever uh, of those it happens to be, the letters are meant for the whole church to see. They're meant for the whole church to to read, and it says that back in, in Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of these prophecies. But notice this here, that Jesus identifies himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The reminder here is Jesus is, is giving this church a picture of himself. The particular picture he's given is, I am the one who is present. I am right there with you. I'm not a God who's distant. I'm not far off. I walk among the churches. Now hold on to that because it it will get important in a minute here. But first there's this this word of encouragement. 
Verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Dude, this is a terrific resume for a church. I mean, really, if you kind of, kind of really take this in, this is a church that is crushing it. Any church would envy this. Jesus says, says, I see you, and this is what I see. He says, I see your hard work. He says, you are about the mission. You are not just a group of people who show up once a week and gather together in a room. You are about the business of God. God's love for the world is being enacted through you, and you're working hard at it. What's more, he says, I've seen it when it's gotten hard. Hardship have come your way as you have done this, and you haven't stopped. You have endured. You have persevered. You have, when you faced opposition, you have endured hardships and have not grown weary. This is no small thing. In fact, I, I think as, as churches age, uh, you could make a case. This is probably the first thing to go. Right? We tend to slide very naturally towards apathy, towards inactivity. And this church hasn't done that. They've, they've remained missional, right? It says two, it says you don't tolerate wicked people. In, in other words, this is a church that doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. This is a church that cares about holiness. They care about moral drift. They take God's word seriously and they do what they can to live by it. And this isn't a small thing either. Uh, you compare some of the other New Testament letters and this was a, a major struggle for many churches. I think of Corinth as one example where you read through 1 Corinthians and they were just having all kinds of trouble with sexual immorality and, and they weren't talking about it. Like they weren't, they weren't doing a thing. They, they were just kind of looking the other way and being like, ah, what are you going to do? That's not this church, not Ephesus. They care deeply about holiness. And then also it says this, it says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles and found them false. Right? So in the matter of false teaching, uh, in other words, he's, he's saying here, if somebody brings a novel teaching, that this church tests it. They know truth from error. This is a church that is tuned in to God's word. And they are committed to following the faith as it has been handed to them, not as modifying it for their taste or customizing it for who they are. They are receiving God's word and they're holding to it. Now, if, if you remember last week, we talked about in Revelation, there's three challenges that the churches are facing that come up again and again and again. Persecution, moral compromise, and false teaching. And you see in the beginning of this letter to Ephesus, all three are referenced here. All three of the challenges that the churches are facing. And in all three areas, this church is crushing it. So what's the problem? Here's the correction. And it's important. Verse 4. Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
you have forsaken the love you had at first. Or some translations put it this way. It feels even more stark. You have forsaken your first love. Jesus looks at this church and he says, you are doing all these things right. You're serving, right? You're about mission. You're out there. You're doing it. You're working hard for the gospel and not just in the easy seasons and the hard ones too. He says, you're orthodox, right? You haven't lost your faith as you've gone. You, you haven't distorted God's word. You're staying true to my teachings. He says, you're, you're moral. You're seeking after righteousness. You're obeying what Jesus taught addressing sin as it comes up, not just pretending that it's not there, but you've lost your first love. You're doing the things, but the things are not infused with love. And here's the thing. Here's the thing with with Jesus being among the lampstands. Jesus is there. Right? He, he's reminding them, I, I'm not somewhere else. I'm in the room. I'm right there. And where's your love? Where's your love? I'm right there with you. But it's kind of like I'm not here at all. It, it, it makes me think of like, like a, a situation where you've, you've got a marriage that maybe over time has grown cold. And there's not a divorce. There's not a separation. You're in the same house. But, but there's, there's one part of that marriage, one spouse is, is shut down, is shut off. Their heart is closed off to the other person. They're right there. They're still in the house. And in some ways, maybe the, the pain of the situation is made worse by the fact that they're not even apart. But it feels like they are. Jesus is saying, I'm right there. I am, I am right there walking among the lampstands. Do you see me? Do you love me? It, it's, a, it's a painful picture. But it's the reality that this church is facing. It's a reality that every church has the potential to fall into. Now, note here too, uh, having love in the church, this is, this is not like a nice to have, right? This is an essential. It's a fatal flaw. Just as lovelessness can kill a marriage, Lovelessness in the church can kill a church too. Verse 5 says, Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remove your lampstand. That is, remember, the lampstand is the church. Jesus is like, Listen, I won't actually let you be a church if you don't have love. You can't. Do this church thing and not have love. He says, if, if you do, I'm, I'm shutting it down, right? And again, this isn't Jesus being mean. Because without love, a church cannot look like Jesus. And we don't want to have churches that don't look like Jesus. Maybe think about it this way. So if, uh, if I quit my day job and I decide I'm going to become a plumber, Right? And I go and, and somebody trains me how to be a plumber. And I'm, I'm working for a plumber. And, uh, you know, at first it's all good. And I like the work. And, you know, it's good and physical and sweaty. I'm like, this is terrific. And I'm into it. But then, over time, you start to say, you know what? I come home with really dirty hands. It's not my favorite. 
I work with a lot of really kind of gross water. I'm, I'm not sure I'm into that. Mm, I don't know. Um, you know, and over time, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to change my job description a little bit. And so one day, I show up to work for my plumber boss. And this day, instead of wearing like the plumbing stuff, I show up wearing an apron and holding a tray of cookies. And I say, hey, today, I've decided I'm going to bake and sell cookies. Now, probably not too many days would pass of me doing this before my boss came to me and said, I'm going to have to let you go. And I would say, why? We're good, aren't we? And the cookies are fabulous. What's the problem? And he would have to say to me, you know, Tim, you're a sweetheart of a guy. And yes, I do love cookies. But this is not the job. This is not the job. This is not what we are here to do. Jesus looks at a church that is failing in love and says, that's that's not the job. You can't be a church that looks like Jesus if you don't have love. Now, let's look at these different areas where the church is excelling and, and just really think about these as we go through. Without love, think about how each of these areas, which are actually successes, end up getting distorted, becoming failures along the way. First, think about this. Without love, serving becomes toil. If love is pulled out of the equation, then serving, as good a thing as serving is, just becomes drudgery. It just becomes work, right? And... We want to be, like the Ephesians, we want to be people where Jesus could look at us and say, you guys are working hard. You guys are doing the stuff. Keep doing the stuff. But when love is removed, I'll tell you, probably the first thing to go is the joy. Serving no longer becomes a joy. Serving becomes a difficult task. Uh, Maybe think about it this way. Um, Paul, I think, kind of gets at this from another direction in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, I've put it in a translation that maybe you're not as familiar with. Just to hear it with fresh ears. Paul says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. In other words, he's, he's painting this picture of some pretty dramatic ways to serve, right? These, this is doing the stuff, man. But he says, if I am doing these without love, what do I really have? Without love, even a good thing like serving ends up becoming distorted. Right? By contrast, with love, serving, serving is joyful. I think, about, I think about some of the most, uh, the, the, the greatest joys that I've had, the sweetest relationships, the, 
the best senses of accomplishment have come in the context of serving in the church, of serving God and his purposes in the world. It is exhilarating. It bonds us together as believers. It's, it's fun. I mean, it is a great way to spend your life. But without love, not only is the joy gone, the worth of those actions are gone too. So as we serve, we want to see that we are doing so as those who are growing in love. Uh, Without love, orthodoxy becomes legalism. Uh, Orthodoxy, again, and by this we mean a a rooted biblical faith. uh, A faith that that the apostles would recognize and go, oh yeah, that's, that's what Jesus taught, right? Uh, this rooted biblical faith, without love, it becomes legalism, right? So orthodoxy, this, this is essential too, right? If we, if we take Christianity and we just swap out all the parts that we like and we change them in for parts that are better suited to our day and our time and our place, uh, we no longer are talking about Christianity. We're talking about something different. Orthodoxy is essential, uh, but... If your love for God or people grows cold, even authentic, biblical, orthodox faith can become an anchor, can become a burden. This is one of the main critiques that Jesus had of the Pharisees in the Gospels, where he would say to them, uh, all you do is you tie up these heavy loads for people to carry around. You don't do anything to help them carry them. Right? Their orthodoxy has become legalism. It's just become a set of rules that people carry out. Uh, it also, uh, uh, when love leaves our orthodoxy, our faith also becomes external. Right? Where whether, rather than being something that is coming from a heart that's changed and is changing to look more like the heart of Jesus, what you end up with is, is a faith that is, is all external, all doings and no being. And, and this too, uh, this becomes a problem on, on many levels, not least of which is that our faith comes down to willpower and willpower runs out pretty soon as well as just really being a drag. Uh, there's no joy in, in a willpower driven faith either. And it's not God's intent. Listen, Jesus has no interest in people who do the right things, but their heart really doesn't want to. He has no interest in people whose faith is external only and isn't coming from a changed heart. Now, don't mishear me here. There's times for all of us, each of us, probably on the regular, where we are gritting our teeth and doing the right thing, even though we don't feel like doing the right thing. That's called obedience. That's good but it's not our final destination. Jesus wants us to become people who are becoming like him, where our hearts not only do the right thing because we have to, but we do the right thing because we want to. Uh, Again, the the Pharisees. Jesus says to them at one point, he says, you know, you're kind of like, like a cup that's filled with all kinds of filth and nastiness and grossness And you wouldn't want to touch it, but you do. You keep drinking out of it. And he says, your solution is to keep cleaning the outside of the cup. (laughs) So it looks terrific, but the contents haven't changed. 
And he says to him, you're doing it wrong. Clean the inside of the cup, and the outside of the cup is going to be clean too. Friends, Jesus wants to change us at the level of the heart. That is his invitation to us. As we spend time with Jesus to transform us into his likeness such that our thoughts and feelings and actions look like the thoughts and feelings and actions of Jesus himself. That's the goal. And when love is taken out, we can't reach that goal. The best we can do is legalism. So without love, orthodoxy gets distorted too. It becomes legalism. And then uh, finally, without love, hating the sin becomes hating the sinner. Verse 6, Jesus says to Ephesus, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, more uh, more on the Nicolaitans in the next couple of weeks. But for now, all we want to note is that Jesus hates their practices, but he doesn't hate them. He says, it's good that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, but Jesus doesn't hate them. But when we start to lose our love for God or people, when our love for God or people begins to grow cold, we find ourselves in a place where we're not just hating the practices, we're hating the people. We're not just hating the sin, we're hating the sinners. And, and I know for, for some of us, even the phrase of hating the sin sounds harsh to our ears. Uh, what can I tell you? It's language Jesus uses himself. It's all through the Psalms. It shows up in the book of Jude. Hating sin is actually an appropriate emotional response for a follower of Jesus. It, it means... That, that we in our spirit are tuned in enough to the holiness, the righteousness of God, that things that don't fit that, that we notice that, and that, that we're put off by that. But here's where it gets difficult. Is sometimes if we have that, if we do have that repulsion, it goes not just towards the action, but it goes towards the person. We go from hating sin to hating sinners. We go from hating practices to hating people. And that's not what Jesus wants for us. It's not what Jesus is about. I mean, you you think of the ministry of Jesus. The biggest critique that he received from people is sinners liked him too much. (laughs) Right? Prostitutes and tax collectors enjoyed his company and And for those looking on, it was like, well, then obviously this is a man who cares nothing about holiness. He must not be teaching them the truth. That's not true. Jesus was all about truth and all about love at the same time. And friends, Jesus wants to make you and I all about truth and all about love at the same time. Here's why that's hard. So love... By definition, love is inclusive, right? Love throws its arm around and is like, hey, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I love you. You are in. Come on. Group hug. Group hug. Love is inclusive. Holiness is by nature exclusive. Holiness says, oh, that's not okay. We can't do that. That's not what we are about. And for God, for God who is is all-loving and all-graceful, 
for God who is all about truth and is all about righteousness, these two coexist perfectly. And we see that in the person of Jesus. He is always about love. He is always about truth. He doesn't need to let go of one to hold on to the other. For us, it might be a lifelong process to learn how to hold on to both well. But that is exactly what Jesus wants to do in you and I, friends. That is exactly what he wants to do in you and I. To bring us to a point of maturity where we can be both loving and truthful. We can do it. We can do it as Jesus leads us into that. But if, if we lose love, then all we're left with is hating both sin and sinners. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Now, um, let's, let's talk for a, a moment here about our practices. And we're going to focus on one in particular. Uh, when we get to verse 5, there's, there's three imperatives here, three things that Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Church who's lost its love, this is what I want you to do. Verse 5, it says, Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Right? There's remember and there's repent. And there's, I'll say redo. Do the things you did at first. Remember and repent and redo. Now, Let's go back to that that couple that maybe is living in the same house, but their love has grown cold. One thing that that sometimes will be counseled for folks in that situation is you need to think about and talk about, you need to remember, what are the things that brought you together in the first place? What are the things that kindled your love in the beginning? You've got to remember. And Jesus is saying the same thing to the church. Remember. Remember. Remember how far you've fallen. See where you are now. Remember where you were then. And you've, you've got to reconnect those two. Repent, he says. You want to turn. When you find places where you are out of sync with where you should be, well, confess those and turn back. And, and then do. Do again the things that you did before. Back when your love was hot. Before your love grew cold. Now, there's, I think there's a number of spiritual practices that we could drop in here, but the one I really want to highlight for us is the practice of worship. If there's one spiritual discipline that connects us, especially that first word, to remember, and then from that, the others can flow, that practice is the practice of worship. Worship in its purest form is nothing more then you and I seeing Jesus as he is and responding to what we see, right? That's, that's what we're doing here on Sundays, right? That's what hopefully is happening when you're worshiping in other contexts too. If you're, maybe you're, you're with your small group and you're talking about God together, you're remembering who he is. This is a form of worship. Or you're in your car and you're driving to work and you're listening to your Bible app or you're listening to worship music, whatever the case might be. What we're doing in that moment is we are Remembering, we're, we're attempting to see Jesus as he is. Uh, my word for, um, for those of us who, who serve on Sundays, 
right? Whether we're teaching or we're leading musically or we're praying with people or whatever the case might be. Uh, my favorite metaphor for what we're doing is this, that our job is, is to be like a lens, right? Think of the, the lenses in your glasses, right? The idea is not to look at your glasses and see your glasses on your face. The idea is to look through them and through that to be able to focus on what it is you're trying to look at. Our job, what we're trying to do here on Sundays is just to be a lens, is just to help people see Jesus well and then respond. So friends, think about this in, in terms of this practice of keeping our love alive, of keeping that love flowing and vibrant and warm. Worship. Worship. Be a worshiper. Right? First, with the people of God, be here. Make it a priority to be here, and when you're here, lean in. Don't go through the motions. Look through the lens. See Jesus. Engage with him in word, in sacrament, in song, in prayer, in fellowship, in all of it. Lean in. This is a key practice for us as we are are keeping our love for God and people flowing well. Uh, I know know for me, of of all the seven letters we're going to go through, this first one is probably the one that I find most convicting. Uh, Just sort of the the way I'm wired, it's really easy for me to make, make my faith just super cerebral. Right? I just I love thinking about things and learning about things. And so my faith can be just one long deep deep dive into this book and then the next book. And you know, I'm it's just kind of how I tick. And and this is a good thing, right? Uh, it's how God's made me and, and it's it's all good. This is part of how I connect with God. But where I where I find that that gets distorted is is often when I come here on Sundays. And where, um, where we'll, be, we'll be singing. And something happens in me that usually doesn't happen any other time during the week. Where there's something about song can just penetrate through, through all the layers of head and reach my heart in ways that, that I don't really understand. But it does. And almost every Sunday there will be some lyric, some line in some song where I'm singing along. And I just come to a full halt because my voice goes away and the tears come. And I'm just like, Arr! And in those moments, I'm like, man, God, I need this so much. My faith will be deformed. It will be distorted if I don't have these practices that bring me into that direct spot of of heartfelt love for Jesus. Worship does that. I've found in, in... uh, kind of my daily spiritual disciplines, this has become a lot more important in the last couple of years too, as I've, I've seen this in myself more and more. It's taken me like my whole life to kind of see, oh, this is a thing. But as I'm seeing it, I'm, uh, especially like when I'm in the car or maybe I'm, I'm in the house and I have a podcast on or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking in content. It's just content all the time. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's put on some worship music. Let's just appreciate God for who he is. And God's using that in me in this season to to grow me, to make me more more like Christ in that way. 
What about you? What about you, friends? What would it look like for you to go deeper into worship? On Sundays, maybe with your small group, maybe in your own personal practices, what would it look like for you to go deeper and to find ways to just go heart-to-heart with Jesus on a more regular basis? This is one practice that, that keeps our love for God and people growing. There's others, too. Serving those in need is huge for keeping our hearts tender towards people. Listening to people, listening to the practice, the spiritual practice of listening to others in your small group or elsewhere, hearing their stories, walking in their shoes, this tenderizes our hearts. There's, there's other practices, too. But I'll, I'll give you worship as maybe the primary one for us to remember who God is and what he's done. I want to uh, wrap up with this. With the, uh, each, le- each letter ends with a word of promise. Where Jesus says, if you're faithful, if you respond to what I'm giving you here, this is what you can expect. This is what he says to Ephesus. Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, if, if you do this, if you hear, you really hear what I'm saying and you begin to practice this and trust me to develop in you those qualities that are lacking, he says, you can expect that you will eat from the tree of life. And if you're not familiar with this reference, this is a, a reference to the very beginning of the Bible, to the Garden of Eden, uh, where this, the source of eternal life was there in the garden. And because of their sin, the first humans were cut off from this, and death entered the picture, and disease, and everything else. Jesus is saying, hey, if you do this, if you're faithful in this, you will eat from that tree of life. Uh, maybe to put it another way, he says, the thing that I've intended for all people from the very beginning, you are going to experience. You are going to enter into that tree of life. Now, is that in heaven? Uh, yes. He's talking here about eternal life. But the beautiful thing about Christ-likeness is that as we're growing into his image, heaven, heaven works backwards. Heaven will, will kind of come out of the, our future, if you will, and work its way into our present, where we are becoming more and more like Christ now. It spills into this Remember, friends, we've said this before, but remember, God's goal isn't just to get you into heaven when you die. It's to get heaven into you while you are still alive. As we pursue a love relationship with Jesus, as we are made more and more in his likeness, we'll begin to experience that deeper love now and into heaven too. But we'll get there when we get there. Jesus wants to bring that into your experience now. Do you want that? Is that something that you want God to work in you? A greater love for him? A greater love for people? This is the promise of Jesus. He is waiting to do this in us now. And if that is you today, as we're responding in worship, I want to invite you to ask him for that. 
to confess those places where you feel you're failing in that and to ask him to make those places whole, to make you one who loves him more and loves people more as well. If there's specific commitments that go with that, right? Maybe there's, there's a commitment to being in worship every week. Maybe there's a commitment to spending your time in the car a little bit differently. Maybe there's a commitment to better love the people you're in small group with. But whatever those commitments are, I want to invite you, make those in the presence of God today. Talk to him about those and ask him to help you to live into this well. Uh, he won't disappoint. To the one who is faithful, the one who is victorious, he will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Let's pray together.